Happy Mother's Day again. Got a Mother's Day quiz for you. No prizes. But, uh, so, who was president when Mother's Day was made an official holiday? It wasn't Abraham Lincoln, but nice try there, Dina. Who's, I heard it. Woodrow Wilson, 1914. Now, does anybody know the mother of Mother's Day? The woman that sort of pushed it forth, what her name was? Mom. Mom. Mom Negative. Her name was Anne Reeves Jarvis. And the interesting thing about Anne Reeves Jarvis is she was never a mother. So nobody called her mom. But she loved and honored, wanted her mother to be honored so much that she lobbied for this uh, Mother's Day. There were different Mother's Day celebrations before the official holiday, but uh, she wanted it to be a national holiday. She felt like all the holidays sort of honored the accomplishments of men, rightly so. No, just kidding. But, but so she wanted something that would honor, honor women, mothers in particular, and so she lobbied for this. But here's an inter- interesting fact about Anne Reeves Jarvis. Uh, not only was she not a mother, but once Mother's Day was passed... It became an official holiday, and so people started celebrating. She felt like it was, it was to be just an honoring of mothers. I think wearing a carnation was like the first thing. But then the florists and the greeting card companies got into it. And so by her death in 1948, she was totally opposed and sought to abolish Mother's Day. So uh, a good idea, she felt, went terribly wrong. So... Let's stick to her focus today and just be honoring mothers, if we will. And coincidentally or not, in our study through the book of Colossians, see, actually, Brian was going to preach today. I was going to have a little break, but then we realized, oh, the passage fits pretty well with Mother's Day. Uh, Today, we come to chapter 3, verses 18 through 21 of Colossians. Here, the Apostle Paul gives instructions to the Christian family of which mothers are a crucial, the crucial part, if you will. Now, throughout this letter, the believer's new life in Christ has been a major theme. Sort of in the beginning, uh, in the beginning, it's like the supremacy of Christ. And, and, then, and then to those that receive Christ, they get this new life. Uh, for example, in Colossians 2.13, Paul writes, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Chapter 3, verse 3, we read, you, who, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul's point is that for believers, those who trust in Christ, our old sinful self died with Christ. We've been forgiven of our trespasses, our sins. We've been justified, declared righteous before God And we've been raised to new life in Christ. We're with Christ. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. And those are not just, Paul wants us to understand, theological truths to be believed. They are that, but they have practical application to be lived out. We've received a new life in Christ, therefore we can now experience that new life. If there's no change between who you were before Christ and who you are after, then you have to 
question, do I have that new life? Am I truly in Christ? We are no longer bound to our old sinful ways. We've been set free by the power of God to live a new glorious life. Amen? And so far, in chapter 3, Paul's given us several excellent instructions for for how to live that new life. Let me summarize. Verses 1 through 4, he says, Pursue what is above. Seek and set your mind on the things of God. Verses 5 through 11, he tells us to put to death, put away what is earthly in us, to kill the residue of our old self, our old sinful self. In verses 12 through 14, he adds that we are to put on the garments of God, to wear, to act out the virtues of God. And in verses 15 through 17, he gives us three commands. Submit to the peace of Christ, allow the peace that Christ provides to govern our lives, internalize the word of Christ, read, study, meditate on, memorize, believe, and obey God's word. And then, let me just read the final command in verse 17 of chapter 3. This command serves both as a a summary of what's gone before and an introduction to what's ahead, what we'll see today. Verse 17, Colossians 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Basically, Paul says, do everything, everything you do, what you say, how you act, in the power of, under the authority of, and as a representative of Jesus Christ. And do it all, giving thanks to God through Christ. This comprehensive command emphasizes all the instructions Paul's already given and the instructions we'll look at today and beyond. We need to keep this in mind, that whatever we do, we're to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That our new life in Christ is a life lived not for ourselves, but for Christ. That includes our personal internal life. What we think, what we feel, what we believe, how we deal with our sin, how we experience relationship with God. It also includes our life in the church and in the world, how we treat one another and how we live as representatives of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 18 through 22, maybe 21, 21, 18 through 21, Paul tells us it also includes our family life. Here he gives some very specific instructions regarding how in our families we live out our new life in Christ. Everything we do in the name of the Lord Jesus includes how we relate to one another as wives and husbands and children and parents. This says to me that God cares deeply about the Christian family. And if we desire to experience the fullness of family life in Christ, we must follow the instructions that Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, gives to us. So let's first read these instructions, beginning in verse 18 of Colossians 3. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Very concise, short, simple. He, he, he gives pretty much the same instructions in the book of Ephesians, and we'll look at those too. 
Get a little expanded version of those. But in many ways, these instructions from God are counter to our current culture. As our culture increasingly rejects God, rejects the Word of God, a natural byproduct is a rejection of God's design for marriage and family. And this is seen most clearly in how biblical marriage, that is, marriage between a man and a woman prior to living together, is no longer the ideal for many. In fact, conventional cultural wisdom says you can and should marry who you love regardless of gender, and you should probably, if you're going to marry at all, do a, 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 a living together test run before you tie the knot. Okay. I was at a wedding recently where the bride, in her vow, spoke openly and unashamedly about how she and the groom were living together. And what made this even more distressing to me was that her father, a pastor, was standing right there performing the ceremony. Also in our culture, our media, our schools, marriage, and even family life is often portrayed negatively. So as Christians, we need to protect ourselves from the cultural degradation of this God-ordained institution, this first-ordained institution, if you will, social institution of family. We should not get our family values from sitcoms or psychologists or university classrooms or women's rights groups. If we're to live the family life that God intends, we must get our values and instructions from the Word of God, which is what we'll seek to do today. But before we turn to these specific instructions for specific people in families, I do want to acknowledge that there are some here today who don't fit any of these categories that we are going to look at. Some who have yet to marry have no children. Some are no longer married. Some are widows. Others have children, but they're grown, no longer living in the home. And so what do these specific instructions for wives, husbands, children, and parents have for those who, at least right now, are none of these? Well, whether we fit these categories or not, some will in the future. For example, uh, Liam and Amber. Everybody know that they're going to be married soon? They're, yay! Big, big hand. So, uh, I think, are you guys both up there? Uh, listen up. This is for you. Okay. Brian and Francesca don't apply currently, but they're about to have a baby. So, they need to know what, what's up with being a parent. Others, like grandparents, teachers, aunts, uncles, may still have responsibility for looking after children, and these verses provide principles to guide us. And all of us know people that fit these categories. And so as believers, it's important for us to understand what God says about the Christian family so that we might better pray for and counsel those who are struggling in their particular family role. All right. So, with that being said, let's all turn to God's instructions for the Christian family. And he begins, like a gentleman, with ladies first. An instruction for wives. And I want to introduce this instruction by first looking at the cultural context 
of both uh, instructions for wives and husbands. Let me read both of those. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What we need to understand is that these commands and the similar ones found in Ephesians 5 were not in line with the culture of, of their day. They express a radically different understanding of marriage that then existed both in the Jewish and Gentile homes. Specifically, they are counter to the difficult lives of women that existed in the ancient world. Theologian William Barclay writes, and it's a long quote, but I think it's worth understanding, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the woman's apartments and did not join the menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. So you can see what Paul is saying is vastly different from both Jewish and Greek cultures of his day. In fact, I mean, the fact that wives, women, were addressed equally with their husbands was radically new. Also, both husbands and wives had duties to one another, not just the wives. And those duties were given them both by the Lord. They were both under the lordship of Christ as equals. All of this was immensely radical and elevating to women. And we need to understand that contrary to what we might learn in school, it's verses like these in the Word of God that raise the position of women greatly in the ancient and the modern worlds. At the same time, within the marital relationship, these words established a definite hierarchy. As Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says, Paul does not hold that there is a divine, excuse me, Paul does hold that there is a divine instituted hierarchy in the order of creation, and in this order, the place of the wife comes next after the husband. However, contrary to how some have abused these verses, this does not suggest, here or anywhere else in Scripture, that the wife is naturally or spiritually inferior to her husband in any way or vice versa. Being in a submissive role does not mean inferiority in any way. We know this because we find a hierarchy in the Holy Trinity, and yet there is equality. The Bible teaches that Jesus, the Son, is simultaneously, at the same time, equal, co-equal to the Father and submissive to Him. And in the same way, equality and submissiveness can coexist in human relationships, including especially the marriage relationship. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, instructs that in the Christian home, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now that word submit in the Greek 
is hypotasso. It's a compound, compound word, hypo, meaning under, or hupo, meaning under, tasso, meaning to accomplish a task or to line up. Literally, it means to line up under. It's a word used in military strategy uh, to have troops arrange themselves under a leader to work together on a march, in a war, or an activity. Basically, to submit means to place yourself under the authority of, to voluntarily submit to their authority in your life. So Paul is saying that in the Christian home, wives are to come under the authority of their husbands voluntarily. Now, I know a few things that will upset our modern, assertive, right-seeking, power-seeking culture than to suggest that a wife should submit to her husband. But this is what the Word of God says. This is what the Word of God commands. And we must resist those, even Christian teachers and leaders, who've been more influenced, I believe, by their culture than the Word of God as they seek to explain away this submissiveness. I know of Christians who want to minimize the wife's submission by pointing to verse 21 of Ephesians 5, where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. They emphasize that submission in marriage is mutual, not just husband to wife. The problem is, the problem with that is uh, threefold. First, in context, if you read Ephesians chapter 5, submitting to one another is directed to the church, in the church, within the church, not in marriage. Second, the verse that follows 21 in Ephesians is, uh, chapter 5 is 22 in case you can't figure that out, which like Colossians says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So even if there is to be a certain level of mutual submission in marriage, which I believe there is, as in all Christian relationships, ultimately, Paul says, the governing factor in marriage is that wives must submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And finally, Paul doesn't include this mutual submission statement in Colossians, which says to me, it's not the governing factor of submission in marriage. Okay. Now, I spend time defending this area of a wife's submission to a husband because it's one of, if not the main thing, about God's design for marriage that our culture rebels against and ridicules. And therefore, it's one of the main things we must battle for. I'll use my uh, almost 38 years of marriage experience as an example here. When Christine and I first got married, uh, there wasn't much, if anything, to submit to. We were so in love, it didn't matter at all. No, just kidding. There just wasn't, weren't things that we disagreed about. I mean, they didn't come up. I don't know. You see, practically speaking, the need to submit arises when there's not a meeting of the minds, Okay? However, once our children were born, we discovered that we had very different ideas about raising them. Now, Christina understood the concept of submission, but as an independent, college-educated woman and mother, she struggled with submitting to my child-rearing ideas. Because growing up in her home with five girls... The raising, especially the discipline, was almost 100% assigned to mom. So there was some conflict, much discussion, fortunate 
parenting classes with Randy and Phyllis back in the day. Some compromise. There was some mutual submission. But ultimately, not because I was a a great guy to submit to, but uh, as unto the Lord, Christina submitted to me, her husband, in this area. She allowed me to be part of the raising of our children. (laughs) And over the years, we came to see the wisdom wisdom of this. That God's design for a child is to be raised by both a mother and a father. That that was a good idea. Because as men and women, we both bring important aspects to their discipline, their training, and their development. Now, just a side note here. I realize there are certain contexts where there's a single mom. I realize there are certain contexts where this just can't apply. And I believe God empowers. God does wonders in lives. But that's not to take away from the fact that he designed a family to have a mother and a father. So bottom line, wives submitting to husbands is part of God's design for marriage. Now, are there qualifications, conditions uh, to that submission? Well, of course. But they're not. Uh, I really don't. I don't. I really. I think. I think he's wrong about this. I'm right. Therefore, I will not submit. That defeats the whole purpose, right? The whole command. However, submit does not mean never expressing an opinion or never disagreeing with your husband. Wives should share their thoughts and ideas, even seeking to persuade their husbands. Christina did that often with regards to raising our kids, and my mind was changed about a number of things. Also, submission does not include following your husband's instructions that are sinful or irrational or harmful to yourself or others. Paul is clear. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The Lord comes first, even before your husband who is just a man. As Peter and the apostles said, To the Jewish religious leaders, we must obey God rather than men. When there's a conflict between God and man, God wins. However, wives, you can't play this card when it doesn't apply. If you're not going to submit to your husband, you should make sure your rationale comes from a clear understanding of the Word of God and not some rebellion in yourself. I would suggest that before taking yourself out from under the authority of your husband, not submitting to him, that you might have a good, long conversation with a godly woman that you respect. Because in the regular course of Christian marriage, for the fullness of life in Christian family, first God says wives are to submit to their husbands. And then Paul gives what I believe you could agree or disagree, is a much more challenging command and instruction for husbands. In the Christian family, wives submit and husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Of the two commands, this was certainly the more radical in Paul's day. I mean, the wife's submission, obedience, servitude, all of that was a given. But this was not. As theologian, Eddard Lau says, such a command does not appear in any of the extra-biblical household rules of the day. He did, he did a survey, he did a search, and could not find this kind of thing anywhere. This was a new idea. Husbands were commanded to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. And we'll see more when we get to Ephesians. Don't overpower them, 
with your anger. I mean, men tend to be larger and louder, and we can be harsh. Don't do that. Instead, your first priority is to love your wife, to do what is loving for her. And, and you know what? That was a novel thought in Paul's day. The word for love here is not eros, for sexual love, as some would expect, or even philos, which means brotherly love, friendship love, but instead agape love, which as we saw several weeks ago, is a word that the New Testament writers, particularly the Apostle Paul, filled with meaning. The Greeks didn't even really have this kind of love in their language, so he took the best word available and then he added, the the New Testament adds to it. It was a new kind of love, love which involved caring for, serving, wanting the best for the other person who in this case is your wife. As we saw in the quote from William Barclay earlier, this idea that a husband would love his wife in this way is radically different from the thinking of Paul's day. And the radical nature of this husband love is seen even more clearly in the parallel passage in Ephesians 6.25. Here Paul gives a more detailed description of the love that's called for. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This radical command to love is only fulfilled when a husband loves his wife in imitation of Christ's love for the church. So how did Christ love the church? Well, to paraphrase Elizabeth Barrett Browning, how did he love us? Let me count the ways. And there are countless ways in which Christ loves his church. But let me just mention two both of which are highlighted by the Apostle Paul in another epistle, the epistle of Philippians. First, Christ loved his church enough to become one of us. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who, though he, Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is a description of the Incarnation of God the Son, uh, of Emmanuel, God with us, God becoming one of us, God identifying himself as one of us. Now, as a husband, we can't become our wife. But a husband can identify with his wife. He can become one with his wife. From the beginning, this was God's design for marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This, this idea is, is something of mutual identification. We see this reflected in Paul's instructions for the husband in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. This is a high call. It may seem impossible, but in the power of the Spirit, which, by the way, is how all of this is done, uh, these commands are not for the general public. These commands are for the Christian family, and you can only accomplish them uh, through the power of the Spirit, especially at a heart level. You might be able to do some of the acts, but to truly submit, to truly love, comes from God alone. It's possible to love our wives in such a way as we identify with their emotions, their will, even their physical body. 
It's possible to love our wives as we love our own bodies. Practically, this means that a husband should, should not only not be harsh with his wives, but must do all he can to understand her, to understand her world. This certainly means uh, we must work at spending quality time together. Time to talk, or more often listen. As the proverb says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Before we seek to fix our wives by calling them to submission, just do what I want you to do. We need to hear them. We need to understand what's happening in their life. How she's feeling emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And speaking of spiritually, we, as Christian men, must spend time caring for our wives' spiritual needs. Helping, encouraging, praying that your wife grow in her relationship, praying that your wife will grow in her relationship with Jesus Christ is the most loving thing you can do for her. Therefore, as a couple, men... We should be praying together, reading the Word of God together, studying the Word of God together, and husbands, out of love for their wives, should lead in this. Okay, so the first way Jesus loved the church was that he became one of us. He identified with us, and husbands must do the same with their wives. The second aspect of love that Jesus demonstrated for the church, which is stated in Ephesians, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ give himself up for his church? Well, back to Ephesians chapter 2, we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is where it gets really radical, okay? Christ's love for the church was sacrificial. He humbled himself... He submitted to the will of the Father, and he died on the cross for his church. Therefore, if we husbands are to have a love like Christ, we must, die, we, we must be willing to die for our wives, literally. You might say, well, I, I would certainly step in front of a, a bullet for my wife. I would push her out of the way. I'd take the bullet. And that's certainly an important sacrifice. But maybe more important to her is your willingness to daily sacrifice, to die to yourself for her, because that's far more difficult. Husbands, uh, the rubber meets the road when we must decide between what we want and what she wants. And again, I'm speaking in neutral terms. I'm not speaking, okay, uh, whether she wants the Word of God or not the Word. I mean, there are certain things that are a given, Speaking in neutral terms, what she wants, what you want. Uh, golf or gardening? Gunsmoke or the Gilmore Girls? Going to the game or going shopping? And those are just the G's, okay? When we decide to sacrifice for her, to put her needs and desires above ours, we're loving her as Christ loved the church. So we have two radical instructions from God. Wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. Now, I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide which one is more radical, more difficult, but neither, as I've said, can be done in our own power, outside the power of God, outside this new life 
that we've received with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And I'll say this, Paul does not make one command contingent upon the other. He does not say, wives, submit to your husbands if they love you. Or husbands, love your wives if they submit to you. These commands are independent, and they're from God. And to be done not because your spouse earns them, but because you are, you are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands for Jesus. Husbands, love your wives for Jesus. Now, with that being said, it's certainly best, it's certainly easiest. Uh, Gloria, she's not here, so I'll talk about her. She grabbed me. She said, you're, when you talk about the husband loving the wife and the wife submit, you're going to say, uh, that love certainly makes it easier to submit, right? And I go, well, that is certainly true. It's certainly best when both wives and husbands are striving to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus in this and all areas. It's much easier to submit to a loving husband, and it's much easier to love a submissive wife. However, in the power of the Spirit, regardless of their obedience or disobedience, we must obey what God has called us to. It is then, when we're both doing it, however, that we can truly experience this new life in the Christian family. And there's more. So that's the husbands and wives. Now we move to the children and the parents. First, an instruction for children. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Can we get the children to come up from downstairs? Speak to them. No. So I'm not going to speak to the children, uh, because it's really the parents. Even this command, I think, is for the parents. Even though it's for the children, and I'll talk about that, there's an implication for parents. Parents must train their children in obedience, which inevitably involves discipline. And in Ephesians 6.4, Paul makes it clear, Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction of the Lord is indispensable. In fact... It's the loving thing to do. Uh, uh, Paul doesn't command us to love our children. I think maybe because that's more natural sometimes. But it's the loving thing to do. We find this clearly taught by the author of Hebrews as he compares the discipline of the Lord to the discipline of a loving earthly father. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Real sons of God and of godly men, or, or men in general even, receive discipline. God disciplines and chastises, which literally means flogs or punishes those he loves. And in the same way, parents must lovingly, for the good of their children, not only instruct them, but discipline them, even physically punishing your children. Okay. I know that's, that's not, what, not what we're hearing. And I'm certainly not advocating any form of uh, child abuse. If we had time, we could talk more about that, the problem that that is. There are times, especially when a child is directly defying a parent's instructions, 
when the seat of the pants need to meet the board of education, right? I mean, there was a, I I don't know if if, uh, Phyllis may have been the first person that pointed this out to me many years ago that there's a reason why this thing has so much padding, you know. Again, remember that discipline and chastisement are for the good of the child, not, this is, a, this is a struggle for us men sometimes, not the venting of our anger. So uh, just a practical, there probably shouldn't be any uh, boards meeting seats without some, a little bit of time to calm down. Now, as we know, punishing a child physically is very controversial in our current American culture. And the problem in many Christian homes is that they choose to allow the culture instead of God's Word to guide their parenting. And when that's the case, the family will not experience the fullness of new life in Christ. So, so for parents, loving, firm discipline is crucial. And for the child, obedience is instructed. Now, Paul doesn't say what qualifies as a child, Does he mean that no matter how old you are, you must still obey your parents? My mom says yes. (laughs) Or does obedience stop at age 18? Well, 18 is an American idea, not a biblical one. And even though the nature of a child's obedience will change as they age, as well as the nature of their uh, discipline, you guys might find this shocking, but I was uh, spanked as a child. And... uh, but it's, it stopped at a certain age because I, I would have loved that spanking instead of that grounding. You know, one spanking instead of a week's grounding, any day. So we have to, uh, our discipline changes. We have to treat a three-year-old differently from a 16-year-old. But let me put in my two cents regarding when, how long a child is required to obey their parents. I believe, and I'm not alone in this, that in general, a child should obey their parents as long as they live under the roof of their parents, as long as their parents are providing for their needs. So, if you're 50, living in the basement, no job, you better obey mom and dad. I know that's hard because they're 70, 80, and it's difficult. Remember in Genesis, God declared, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Throughout history, a man, or especially a woman, would live with her parents until they got married. But since this is not necessarily the case in our day, I would say that when we leave the home of our fathers and mothers, and we're taking care of ourselves, you know, if you live down the street and they give you a, uh, an allowance, I, I, I don't know what that, you know, that gets a little complicated. But when we're taking care of ourselves, when we're independent of their care, then we're no longer bound to the command to obey them. However, we are always bound to the fifth commandment to honor our parents, our fathers and mothers, to respect them, to listen to them, to love them, and even as time goes by to care for them when they need care. But obedience, I believe, ends when we leave their physical care. So that's my two cents about how long a child must obey their parents. Now let's look at uh, obedience. This command is significant for two reasons, maybe more, but I'll point out two. First, it's different from, uh, from the word that was used in verse 18, where wives are told to submit to their husbands. 
The word there suggests a voluntary coming under the authority of, a choice, where here the command is more absolute. The other reason is that the word is significant is that the Greek uh, word is a compound word, a combination of listen and under. There's still that under, listen and under, and can be read literally, listen under your parents, or really listen to your parents and do it. Obedience begins with listening. My daughter and son-in-law, who now have three boys, if you want to pray for them, uh, they make it a practice to make direct eye contact with the son who needs talking to. They say, eyes, eyes, and that is a signal to the boys to turn and look at them, to see my eyes so I can see your eyes. It really means listen closely. So obedience involves both hearing and doing. But in the Christian family, where the heart is important, obedience must also include the right attitude. Children are all too often like the proverbial little boy who was told by his teacher to sit in the corner. As he sat there, he was thinking, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. The scripture, call, scripture calls for heart obedience to parents, as in as heart obedience to God. You will note, too, that, that it says children are to obey in everything. Now, are there any exceptions? Again, we must obey God rather than men. We're never to go against uh, Scripture to, uh, in, to obey anyone, nor must we sin or do anything irrational or harmful to ourselves or someone else, carrying out the obedience of our parents. The command is not a carte blanche for parents to be cruel to their children, but these cases aside, the Scripture before us says, obedience pleases the Lord. God looks with favor on those who obey their parents. The parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 3 similarly says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The point is, we have here a simple and powerful command to all children to truly from the heart obey their parents. Neglect this command will bring sorrow if not right now, then surely later in life. But if obeyed, it brings new life in the Christian family. And finally, Paul gives an instruction for parents. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Notice first that this command is directed specifically, primarily to fathers. This is not to say that mothers cannot, do not provoke their children. They certainly can. However, this would be more typically a father's issue. The father is normally away from the children more than the mother and is therefore less in touch with them and more prone to false judgments, unwise direction. Therefore, side note, fathers would be wise to listen to what their wives say about their children. The other day, recently I bought for my grandson uh, one of those Razor scooters. You guys know what I'm talking about? And Christina saw it, and she goes, oh, is that for Jonathan? And I go, no, that's for David. And she goes, well, he won't ride that. Uh, he's, he's a little afraid of things right now. Even though he's five and Jonathan's three, 
And so when the scooter came, David was excited about the scooter, but he doesn't want to ride it, and Jonathan does. So Grandma knew the, 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 a little better uh, about what they needed, what they were like. Also, fathers being men are less prone to nurturing and more tr- prone to fixing, and therefore we do not always deal with our children in a well-thought-out loving manner. And this can certainly provoke our children. That word provoke in the Greek means to irritate over a period of time, continually nagging or deriding them, putting them down, which results in discouragement. They don't even want to try. Also, the parallel in Ephesians 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This provoking over time not only leads to a child's discouragement, to anger and rebellion against their parents. So fathers and mothers, we need to rein in our nagging and deriding. Millions of children, even in Christian homes, experience a constant reign of criticism. I think of myself. I was, I was oh man, I think of my son and, you know, I would uh, kind of, I would give him a dig if he got an A-. minus. Yeah. Well, because he was, he could, yeah. Anyway, he didn't try. I mean, he was just super smart, and so an A minus meant he didn't try as hard. So, but I shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. John Newton, the great preacher and hymn writer, Amazing Grace, for one, who experienced such a wretched life before turning to Christ, said, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. Parents, fathers, discipline is to be given, but so is encouragement. Obedience is to be nurtured by love and praise. We must do what we can to keep from discouraging and angering our children. And even though we are, uh, we are to instruct, discipline, and even chastise our children, we must refrain from provoking them with harsh and over-strict rules. We all know that the world is uh, increasingly filled with a variety of dangers, some real, some made up, that can fall upon our children. And because of this and other reasons, parents can be tempted to say no to virtually everything their child asks. No, you can't play outside. No, you can't go to the park. No, you can't spend the night at Johnny's. No, you can't cross the street. No, you can't have a skateboard, etc., I remember when I was in seminary, uh, Dr. Robinson McQuilkin was speaking during chapel service, and he gave, gave one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received for parenting. He said, in dealing with your children, whenever possible, say yes. Our, reason, our reasons for saying no must be well thought out and valid. Am I truly doing what's best for them, or is this what's expedient for me? Is what they're asking dangerous to them physically or morally? Otherwise, really try to say yes. As parents, we're called to protect our children. But we must realize that there are some risks involved in all of life, even, even driving to church. So realizing this, for their good, give your children as much age-appropriate freedom as you can. All right? 
So we've seen the four instructions that Paul gives for Christian families. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Husbands are called to love their wives. Children are called to obey their parents. Parents, fathers especially, are called to not provoke their children. So whichever category or categories you fall in, I'd encourage you to take God's Word seriously. To let the Word of God richly dwell within you instead of the bombardment of what the culture is saying. To obey these commands and thus experience the new life God has for you and your family. And for the categories you don't fall into, I'd call you, call you to encourage and pray for those in your life who are husbands and wives and children and parents. Christina and I are uh, mainly grandparents now. Well, only. I mean, we're a husband and wife, but we're grandparents. And we see at least one of our roles is to encourage our children in their marriages and parenting. We don't offer unsolicited advice, but we try to be there to encourage and walk with our kids as they raise our grandchildren. Right? And practically every night, uh, we pray together. We pray for one another, we pray for the church. But the most consistent thing we pray for is our children, who no longer must obey us. Otherwise, maybe it'd be different. Maybe I could just tell them what to do. Uh, among other things, we pray that they will grow closer in their relationship with God. We pray for their marriages, that they will grow closer in relationship with one another. And we pray that they will bring up their children, our grandchildren, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So pray for the Christian families in your life. Maybe even take Colossians as an outline, Colossians 3, 18 through 21, and pray through it for a family that God puts on your heart. Pray that in the power of the Spirit of God, they will obey the instructions that God gives them and will experience new life from God in their families. And so would you pray with me now? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you care. You care for Husbands and wives and children and parents, you care for families. You want Christian families to represent you well in this world, and you've given us instructions in how to best do that. Lord, I pray for myself and my roles, husband and grandfather even now, Father, that I would follow these commands, the principles there, the reality. I pray for each person here that we would do the same, Father. Lord, have your hand upon us. Lord, our desire is to see, uh, see families grow in you, to grow closer to you, to grow closer to one another. Lord, and it's through these, these instructions that you've given. You've given us the path. You've given us the guidance. Lord, I pray that we would rise up and take the challenge, that we would be all that you've called and all that you empower us to be in our families. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, as we close out with our last song in worship here, as always, I'll invite you to stand with me if you'd like, if you're able.